HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're foraging. From Prospect Park to an iPhone app, what does it mean to find our own food? We've recorded, I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City. You know, my ingredients are making themselves, and so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them. Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Processing, a show about the intersection of food and grief. With your host, Bobby Conforto. Oh my god! You just jumped right in there, you sneak! <laughs> Did you hear that? She just snuck right in and stumped with your hosts, Bobby Conforto and... Sara Tangora. A mother-daughter duo. We don't know where one begins and the other one ends. Oh, that, I mean, that's what we're trying to suss out here. That's what right. we're trying to... That's was, why I'm in therapy. <laughs> this was a very, very special episode. Yeah, it was great. We were joined today by uh, writer Amy Leeball, and Amy has um, is a co-founder of an amazing blog called Eat Darling Eat that features stories from all over the world um, of different mother-daughter relationships and the intersection of food. Yeah, the intersection of mother-daughter relationships and food. That's yeah. exactly right. Very interesting. One, she could have told so many stories, yeah. and she herself is a wonderful storyteller and a very astute um, awareness of life, and uh, she offered so much today. It was funny. Amy mentioned Nora Ephron very briefly in there and at the end and kind of referencing something that Nora Ephron used to say a lot, which is like, everything is copy, which was something that her mother used to always say. Like, mm-hmm. was, you know, she always would say, my mother said everything is copy. And uh, Amy kind of reminded me of Nora Ephron from the first moment we had a pre-interview, which is the highest compliment I could ever (laughs) pay any human being ever to live because Nora Ephron is my number one uh, idol of all time. But yes, uh, Amy has has a Nora Ephron, New York woman uh, type quality to her and was a wonderful storyteller and a wonderful person and is amplifying people's uh, voices and in their ability to tell a variety of different stories about mother-daughter relationships. To help heal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really cool. So please check out Eat Darling Eat. Uh, we loved this interview. Amy is just a wonderful person. And uh, yeah, this was so great. And Bobby and I are sitting next to each other mm-hmm. again. 
Again. <laughs> we'll be back in the studio hopefully soon enough. But for now, we're in Bobby's therapy office surrounded by lots of amazing books. But, um, all right, everyone. Well, be kind to e- yourselves and also to each other. And have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the episode. Call your mother. Yes, exactly. Or, you know, if you don't have a mother to call, that's okay, you too. You can't. You can still call. Call her. a friend. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. lucky enough today to be joined by Amy Lee Ball. Amy is the co-founder and co-creator of an amazing blog called Eat Darling Eat, which is all about the mother-daughter relationships and different beautiful essays and recipes and stories written by mothers and daughters um, about this, you know, one of the most interesting, complicated, uh, nuanced, bizarre, amazing, <laughs> painful relationships in our life, the mother-daughter relationship. Amy, thank you so much for joining us today on Processing. I'm glad to be here with you. Yeah, it's really great. So, gosh, I don't even know where to, how, where do we even dive in? I mean, I guess one of the questions that I really had for you um, was your motivation behind you know, starting this beautiful project, Eat Darling Eat. And I guess maybe if we could just kind of start at the beginning of like, you know, when you decided to start the blog, what motivated you to do it? I, and I mean, I know stories of mother-daughter relationships are interesting, but I would assume, and I want to hear your, obviously your uh, recanting of it, but like, you know, I would think it's probably something bigger for you. So what, what is, what, how did this happen? Um, I come from a journalism background, uh, many years working for magazines and New York Times. My partner, co-founder of Eat Darling Eat, Steve Baum, comes from a documentary filmmaking background. So both of us have essentially been storytellers for all of our professional lives. Um, We're also both foodies, although I wish there were a better word than that. I cook, uh, we both love to eat, um, and we started thinking about this unique relationship. Uh, we sometimes say, a bit facetiously, it's perhaps the most important relationship in a woman's life and you can't get a divorce. Um, mm-hmm. And we, we realized that although there is a great deal written and spoken about that unique relationship in its many forms, many cultures, many countries, many families, Um, that using food as a way to explore that relationship and illuminate the experiences and the personalities was really unique. Um, And so we have about almost 500 stories on the site from all around the world. Um, We're represented uh, by six of the seven continents. We don't know anybody in Antarctica yet, so if you know anybody there, send them our way. And when you invited me to be on this program, I started thinking about how so many of the stories for Eat, Darling, Eat really reflect a kind of processing. And I hadn't really thought of the stories through that lens before, but it is... Uh, it, these stories really are a way of 
remembering a, a mother or a daughter, perhaps a beloved person, perhaps a more complicated person, perhaps trying to find resolution or healing about that relationship. Some of the stories are about preserving heritage and processing what families have been through in the past. So many of our amazing stories are about immigration and assimilation into a new culture. And as you can imagine, that involves whole new levels of processing. Totally. Really, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think the similarity between what you're doing, what you and Steve are doing with the blog and what uh, we do here on the show is, you know, grief is a topic that is also so difficult to kind of approach and um, something that we don't really talk very honestly about in this culture. So when we started the podcast, it was a way to, you know, using food, a way to kind of, you know, get in there and, uh, you know, make it more comfortable for people to have these conversations around grief because food is easy to talk about and grief can sometimes be hard to talk about. And while I know that maybe like on the surface talking about mother daughter relationships or mothers talking about their daughters or vice versa, isn't as hard as maybe talking about grief, but it, it is. And it's very complicated. And I think, you know, touching on some, there are feelings that are complicated within that relationship, even for people who don't necessarily think of that all the time, think of their relationship with their mother as complicated it is. And I was thinking about today how there is so much kind of just inherent grief within the the mother-daughter relationship, whether it be, you know, right there on the surface, like I, one of the, you know, people in that relationship has passed away, or, you know, if it's just the anticipatory grief, or it's like really the grief that like the mother and the daughter both experience from, the big, the big, from the very minute you're born, you are moving away from each other, but yet you kind of don't want to. And in that, even there's so much constant grief. And so I just think, you know, what you're doing is really providing people the kind of platform to share their stories in that way is very important. And it's a very difficult thing to talk about. And I think through sharing the story through food makes it so much kind of more, a little bit easier to get it out and to digest it. Yeah. I think it may be a lot about expectations um, from the get-go, from, as you say, the, the, the time we're born. So, yes, in the stories in each early often reflect those kinds of conflicts, but by delving into the family background, particularly when there's a food angle, which, as you say, makes things a little more palatable. Mm-hmm. And heart Sorry for that. Yeah. the pun. Yeah, hearts and yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah, um, there's there's really a chance for understanding. Mm. I mean, we had a story from a woman whose mother grew up in a World War II Japanese internment camp making soup out of ketchup and water. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a way of really understanding who you are, what your mother's issues might have been. Absolutely. Where you've come from. Uh, yeah. Where you've come from. Your mother as um, a person. As a person. Exactly. From a as, of circumstances. Yes. Mm. yes, and that's one of the constant themes uh, in the stories, that people are often relating experiences from childhood, but now they're two adult women. Mm. Um, and sometimes there are interesting stories about uh, an aging mother um, who has 
come back to sharing the same space and the same kitchen with her right. adult daughter. Uh, a complicated uh, scenario, no doubt. Um, the, the When you talk about grief, food has always been part of grief, of course, right. of, of healing. We, whatever, whether you're Italian or Jewish or Hindu or whatever, yeah. when you're in the process of consolation um, and mourning, there's always food uh, around. Um, there was one story that I'm thinking of, which was called Rebellious Soup. And it was written by um, a woman who talked about the lentil soup that her family always made. And they called it rebellious because they didn't eat it with a spoon. They ate it with their hands. They used chapati, chapati bread to pick up the soup. And her father had taught her how to make it. And her father died. And when she went home to be with her mother after the death of her father, that was the first thing her mother wanted to do was to recreate this soup. And as they worked together, you know, finding strength in the unity of, of, the kitchen work and this bond of sorrow between them. And there was a kind of strange beauty about it, but the soup helped them heal. Mm, Yes. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, Bobby and I, I mean, you wouldn't know it necessarily from the fact that we have such a kind of close relationship now work together, but we have had really difficult times in our lives as mother and daughter, and even sometimes still do. But I think like the one way in which we find, you know, commonality and heart-centered. Again, I think it's because to us and most people who would really appreciate the value of food, it's connected to your heart. Right. And so I think it opens your heart in a way so that you don't, your defenses, you don't have the same defenses. And I agree with you that when you're cooking together, um, it's collegial. You have to work together. You have to, um, you know, lay down defenses in order to work well together. Yeah. We we don't plan having a lot of fights. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that we often see is how personality types are revealed in the kitchen. Mm. Um, are you neat and orderly or are you surrounded by a cloud of flour all the sure. time? Um, yes. Do you Are you a rule follower, a recipe follower, or do you like to break out and do creative things? Right. Are uh, you codependent and continually try to guess what somebody else is going to need. <laughs> yes. Are you, are you a good commander or a good lieutenant? Right. Um, yeah. all of, what music is playing? I'm, I love the stories where there's a young person trying to convince her mother to turn off the Sinatra and you know play Bon Jovi or <laughs> Maroon 5 or something. Um, yeah, there's so many things that are revealed there. And then, of course, we have lots of stories where mom could barely boil water and kept Szechuan delivery on speed dial. But yeah. there's there's often a way that you can see who she is, even through that culinary limitation. Um, exactly. You might realize that she's a big flirt when she goes to the market to get the best lamb chops. For sure. Um, For sure. Yeah. Yeah, I always think of I always think of one of the first podcasts we did was with one of Zara's friends who was from Indiana, and she had a difficult situation with her mother. You know, her mother actually had mental illness, and but when she described her, and her mother didn't cook, but they would make tuna puffs 
and the name of the episode was tuna puffs and it, i always thought that was so important because they didn't have big glamorous meals and they didn't have um even ethnic cuisine that was to their family correct but it was something about that that was so poignant and powerful yeah i mean i think that uh kind of what you were saying in the beginning about you know talking about uh people whose mothers, you know, were in internment camps and making ketchup and soup with ketchup and water. And, be like, food is this way, I think, just circling back to kind of what we were talking about earlier, that you can kind of start to understand things about people and about situations that could be otherwise very hard to understand, right? Because, like, for a variety of reasons, you're not living in the same time period. There are so many things that feel almost like a story, but we do know what ketchup and water are now. <laughs> and we do know what you know we do have these things that are like lasting right so i think it can be a very useful tool whether it be in food i mean in parenting and mother-daughter relationships or in uh, understanding grief or really just understanding many things that are otherwise can be very complicated to kind of wrap our heads around food is kind of that like like little uh i don't know that anchor into something that's relatable and, you know, I think that uh, I was thinking about earlier, too, about mothers who don't cook and, and that food experience being just as valuable, like you were saying, you know, and um, I think that everybody just has this like little thing that they can remember so often about their relationship with their mom. And even if it's that the that their mom passed away, you know, or is they never really got to know them. There's still this thing about food that can connect there because of, of the absence of it or the absence of you know, having a parent that was around that cooked. And I don't know, I just think it can be this really interesting way to access feelings that we probably otherwise might not be able to kind of touch. Because sometimes you can only put your toe in the water to something that's painful, you know? And I think, like, food is the t is the toe. And the water is their whole rest of fucking complicated <laughs> and wild life, you know? And so I think that's why what you're doing by telling these stories through food is important because it's good to put your toe in the water and maybe then someday you put your whole foot in there, you know? We had one story uh, by a woman whose mother had a secret recipe um, for a, a baked good. And when she died, they decided it was time to reveal it. And they printed the recipe on the back of the card that was handed out at her memorial service. That's processing. Wow. <laughs> That's a Big real healthy processing. Um, yeah. We had a story uh, by a young gay woman who was out to everybody in her world, in her family and friendships, except her very conservative mother. And the, the stress about telling her mother was overwhelming. And she had decided that she was going to reveal herself to her mother when she went home for a family holiday where she knew that her mother would be making her famous pecan pie. But she's sitting there at the dining table and her throat is closed up. She can't eat a drop because she knows what she has to say to her mother. And finally, yeah. she just blurts it out. She says, I'm gay. This is who I am. You have to understand me. You have to accept me. I'm tired of these nasty things that you say. And her mother just looked at her and said, well, you know I'm always going to love you. Now will you eat your damn pie? <laughs> that's processing. <laughs> that's that's, that's amazing. processing. That's really, really, really wonderful. It makes me think of a story. Um, I often ask clients to think about their home, their family home of origin, and to bring themselves into a room, to just bring themselves into a particular room and who's there, who's in the house, who's in the room, what are they doing? And it's a great way for me to understand 
you know, more about their dynamics of growing up. And I remember somebody once telling me they landed in the kitchen and they saw all they could see was their mother's back. And she said, that's all I ever saw. My mother was always busy cooking and she was always making things, but she never was relating to me. Mm. So there's so many different ways it can work because the kitchen means so many different things in different I, families. The I want that woman to write a story for Eat Rolling Eat. That's a beautiful image. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we've, we've, I remember a story we had um, from a, a woman in a big Italian family. Her mother had been a nun and had fallen in love and had left the church and wanted to create a big family of her own. So this woman, who was our storyteller, was the eldest of, I think it was nine children. But she had to become a kind of second mother to the rest of the brood. And so she didn't get the experience of being mothered herself. Uh, and she kind of saw, would have seen her mother in that kitchen in a very particular way, perhaps not exactly like the back of the woman that you've just described, but certainly yeah. in, in work mode, not in nurturing mode, um, not helping her to buy a prom dress for her junior prom or taking her to right. tea and crumpets on a Saturday afternoon, a very particular way of, of experiencing being mothered. Mm. Yes, exactly. What do you, Amy, I'm curious from all the stories that you have uh, had and read and, and heard on Eat, Darling, Eat, and maybe even through the rest of your career as a journalist, um, what is like the, is there a tie, is there a common tie throughout all these stories, even though they're so different and unique and, you know, uh, is there something that you've seen that is a common theme throughout at all? Well, I think what I'm about to say may sound pretty banal, but um, it it may just be the quest for being loved and understood. Um, if if we don't get that in childhood, it sounds like we go on a lifelong search for it. Are you yeah. my mother? Right. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And there's also, yeah. I think, there's. Um, there, there are these wonderful little full circles that we see in in the Eat Darling Eat stories where um, there's a kind of reversal of roles where the, the daughter starts to do some of the mothering to an aging parent. Um, I remember it was a hallmark of my maturity the first time my mother let me pick up the check in a restaurant. Um, there are... Uh, there are these life cycles that all of us go through wherever we come from, rich, poor, religious, not religious, whatever ethnicity. We all experience that same circle of life. And to me, some of the most poignant stories that we get are the ones that are at the end of that cycle for the mom. There's, there's one story that... Um, slays me every time I read it. It was called Must Be Gorgeous. And it was written by a woman whose mother was a cigarette girl at the Drake Hotel in, wow. I guess, the 1960s. Oh you know, in a, in a blonde beehive hairdo and <laughs> carrying her Winstons and Salems on a tray. And she had a, she had a British accent and she was pinched by the men all of the time. And she was stared at. She was often stared at because of her beauty. Well, now she has Alzheimer's, 
And when her daughter goes to take her out for a little sort of outing, she gets stared at for different reasons. She might Mm. pick up a little container of Schmucker's jelly in the diner and lick it with her tongue or pick up a a filet of salmon and wave it around in the air. And she's still being stared at for very different reasons. But they've gone through this entire cycle together and there is an understanding and a processing. I keep coming coming back to your wonderful word because it's a great theme. Yeah, it really is. We could never, we didn't know what the right word was and actually some um, um, people from the studio helped us find that word. It is the right word. It's exactly right. Because processing is what we do all the time to make sense of things, yes. you know, right. to, to, to learn to live with things, to accept things. We're constantly processing. Right. And, you know, I was thinking as you said that before about, you know, life is filled with loss and we, we all agree with that. From the moment you come out of the womb, there's a loss right away. And we continue this. The changes that happen are losses. And I was thinking when you said about how um, the mother, the child often becomes the parent to the mother, that when Zara became a professional chef, you know, I was always the person that cooked in the kitchen. She was always great and she could experiment. But when she became a professional chef, I felt so much smaller. I feel <laughs> yeah. smaller in the kitchen. And when I went to help her in her restaurant, Brucie, I felt like an old lady. I really did. I felt I wasn't old, but it was because she had grown and she had advanced me in her development. And is that a grief? Of course. And how did you it's, process but it's, it? But it's a grief. But it's a pleasure too, and a joy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, that's what's supposed to but happen. But I mean, that's it's supposed a, to happen. Totally. Exactly. But it's one of those things that, like, you know, I, I imagine seeing a kid go off to college or something is a similar thing. A, a hallmark of adulthood and of independence but that's also grief and so i'm curious actually like how did you well i'm talking about when the kid gets smarter than you <laughs> no, I <understand. laughs> they know more than you i mean there's a lot of different things right, right. smarter taller yeah, yeah, exactly. stronger whatever yeah. has their own house has their own life is and especially as like you know we peak and that not i don't know you know what i mean as you're feeling well, amy said it it's a loss and a pleasure but how do you, i'm curious to know like in, in reality not just like yeah. well i've decided to feel good about it like how do you actually process that well, to come to a place where you feel okay about it well i remember the a little bit of the shame that i felt in your restaurant when mm. i felt so small you know because mm. i had owned a restaurant too and in my restaurant i was mm. enormous <laughs> but you know in your restaurant i was smaller and I, I, so I noticed it, I felt the grief of it, and then being self-aware, I could understand that that was part of development and that was part of change. We've had a number of stories that uh, explore passing on the mantle as the matriarch of the family. Um, mm. It might happen over a holiday dinner that was always held at mom's house, and now right. um, sure. there's a change in those and those plans, um, but the, the, those kinds of experiences make me think of that song from Fiddler on the Roof. It's, is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? I don't remember getting older. When did they? Um, yeah. uh, and it, it, it also reminds me of that saying, um, now I'm going to get this one wrong, but it's like when they're young, we give them grounding when they're older, we give them wings. And that's what you want. You want your daughter to fly. But there is a loss associated with that and a processing. Exactly. Both are true at the same time. And it's weird because it's like, 
I don't know. And then same, similar for, for me as a daughter, like there are certain kind of things that happen. And like, you know, even being the one with the restaurant or hearing about that, like, it's sad because like you're losing your youth and you're, we're all getting closer to dying. I mean, it's sad. It's sad. Right. And it's one of those things that it's a sad, that there is no, I mean, yes, in downloading it and processing it and, and sussing it all out, there's some relief, but there's no real, like, you know, a lot of times when we're sad about something, there's something you can do to feel better. And this is a constant, you know, the kind of grieving of, the separation from like, you know, of growing up and, and that just that part of the mother daughter relationship is a sadness that you just have to live with all the time. But it's, it's, you know what, it, it reminds me of the, what I talk about in the string of pearls, the philosophy that we've weave into the losses are what helps us make sense of things. So it's true that you experience loss when you see your parent aging. But your philosophy about life is what helps you make sense of it. So that's what helps right. you deal with it. Right. That's why it makes sense to try to think about what life means because it helps us deal with the losses that we have. Yeah. There's a Native American philosophy that somebody mentioned to me when my mom died. Um, uh, the week after my mom died, I fell and I tore my rotator cuff and sprained my ankle. Um, and a friend of mine told me that there's a Native American belief that when a woman dies, the wind hits her in the face for the first time. Mm. Boy, that's what it felt like. It's yeah. totally what it felt like. Yeah. Um, and I, I, there's, there's a kind of, because, because a lot of people are dealing with um, uh, either physical or uh, emotional um, illness like um, uh, senility or Alzheimer's as their mothers are aging, this necessary loss process might take a long time. It, um, and we have to learn how to live with it. And a lot of the stories at Eat Darling Eat really do reflect that extended process. And because we always like to look at how food is involved in the family, they're often reflecting on the importance of food when everybody was younger and healthier, or about the traditions that they inherited that are still very dear to them and that allow them to um, keep the person with them. Um, there's a story that we had that was uh, called Different, and it was by a woman who grew up in Sweden where everybody was tall and thin and blonde, and she was not. She was dark-skinned, and she looked different than everybody. But it was her mother's baking that allowed her to feel that she was truly home and, and that her mother's kitchen was a place of such safety and comfort that they could have important conversations there, whether it's about boys and sex and dating or about her own ambitions and education or about family gossip, uh, the, the kitchen can be a place where those conversations take place. Yeah. And it's where we process a lot. You know, we, we eat three meals a day or two meals a day. And when we sit down for the repast, I always like that word, you know, there's that time to just think about how process things and think about the day or what you're about to do. Or, and if your family's there, having those kinds of conversations. 
There's such an opportunity for understanding. Even uh, there's there's a story that we had that was called Dinner from Dented Cans. It was about a woman who knew that she grew up poor. She knew they didn't have very much, but her mother always made very tasty food. And she remembered going with her mother to a house where her mother would pick up the food and bring it back and cook nice meals. And she realized that there were all these always dented cans. And as she got older, she understood that her mother was getting food for free from a food pantry. And, and she also remembered her mother lugging the bags of groceries or the, the wheelie cart that she used up and down, up and down flights of stairs to their apartment. And she feels such gratitude now that she can drive her car into her own garage and unload her groceries. That's, that's a processing and understanding of where you came from, what was hard for your mother and, how, and yes. what she accomplished in spite of it. Yeah. Exactly. Seeing ourselves as separate, I think we were talk, touched on that before, you know, how you start off with your child in your womb and you're one, and then the separation begins. And I think it's it's really important to be able to, for the parent to see the, the certainly the adult child, but the young child too, as a separate human being on their own journey, on their own path, and how important it is for the child to see the parent as their own separate unique person. And I think that's always a process in relationships that makes a difference. It helps us have better relationships where we can see ourselves as separate. For sure. Amy, I'm curious if you wouldn't mind sharing a little bit about, can you share with us a little bit about your relationship with your mom? What was, what was your mom? Um, I am the only child of an only child. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and my dad died when I was a teenager. Um, so it was a very tiny family. Uh, my mother and I were crazy about each other, but we were very different people. Uh, I, I, I often think one of the phrases that I heard most frequently coming out of my mother's mouth was, if I were you, as in, if, if I were you, I'd buy the skirt in black instead of white because it's always going to get dirty. You're going to have to have dry cleaned all the time. And the only realistic response to that was, but you're not. Um, so that was a kind of uh, bone of contention for us um, for, for all of our lives. Um, but uh, we, we figured it out. We did, we did our processing. Um, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, I, she was in her 40s when I was born, so um, there was, there, there was. I'm ashamed to admit it now. A little bit of embarrassment about having an older mother. At the time, it was unusual. Um, it reminds me of some of the stories we get at Eat Darling Eat that are uh, um, by immigrants to this country, and they're embarrassed by uh, an Indian woman, her mother wearing a sari or um, right. a, a Korean woman whose mother sends her to school with kimchi and all she really wants is like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Instead, there's this garlicky yeah. smell that wafts up in the school cafeteria. So yes, I'm, I'm um, ashamed now that I was embarrassed to have an older mother because I understand uh, what it was for her to have me at that older age. Yeah. And so, you know, what was the cooking relationship? What was the food relationship with with you guys? So my mother uh, was married late in life. Um, 
one of those people that I referenced earlier who did not know how to boil water. <laughs> and um, my, I, I have a book that my dad gave her when they became engaged um, called The Single Woman's Guide to Cooking. And it still has a card, scotch taped to the inside of the book that says, darling, now you will not have an excuse. <laughs> she did figure out how to feed her family. It was never a source of creativity and pleasure for her that it is for some of us. I mean, last week I made cinnamon buns just because it was rainy and I had yeast in the house and I thought it would be fun. My mother did develop certain specialties. Um, uh, she was Jewish, I'm Jewish, um, but she made fabulous veal parmesan Ooh, and she, she, she discovered um, uh, Craig Claiborne and Virginia Lee's Chinese cookbook and she became a great Chinese chef. Um, and we always loved uh, exploring restaurants together. That was always a, a great source of fun for us because she loved to eat. Um, the cooking was really more maternal responsibility for a large part of her life. But she also loved the rewarding uh, responses she would get when she made something great. So she made uh, a Jewish version of um, biscotti that's called mandelbrot. Mm -hmm. And um, she would make huge batches of it and bring it to all of my friends. Um, and they called it Mrs. Mandelbaum <laughs> instead of Mandelbrot. And she loved getting that back from them. She, um, she was a late bloomer in a lot of ways. Um, she became very kind of creative and artistic later in life. She um, made fabulous, huge sculptural jewelry later in life. Wow. Um, and uh, she took art classes where she um, made pottery and pretty much every one of my friends got like a vase or a trivet. It's, we're on radio now, so I can't show it to you, but we'll if we were on TV, I could show it to you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awesome. she, was a, she, is, she, is, she was a unique. Yeah. How did you first learn to, when did you realize that you loved cooking? So it definitely wasn't a part of my early childhood. Um, when I went to college, um, I used to read cookbooks the way other people read novels. I'm the same. Uh, yeah. I'm about to go to LA tomorrow and I'm lugging Burt Green's <laughs> name. Green, green, green on green. I, I have greens on green right there. Well, that, in the, in the that, that's a good cookbook. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just had a. No, absolutely. Same way. Um, yeah, and uh, of course, I could watch cooking shows on TV, and um, that it, it just became a, a source of creativity. I also really like to eat well, and mm. I don't think you can really eat well unless you cook. <laughs> it, make, it definitely makes it harder. That is for absolute sure. And you live in. I always say that Julia Child really taught me how to cook. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I actually had the opportunity to interview her oh. years ago and, oh. and told her that. Oh my gosh. Now, I mean, this isn't necessarily about food and grief or mothers, although Julia Child is a mother figure to many. 
But what was what was that experience like? Because what did, I mean, talk about like some you know if we're gonna think of mothers as like teachers and stuff. I mean, Julia Child. What was what was it like to? So she she was um it was it was toward the end of her life. She was I think eighty two or so. Um, her husband had died. Her beloved Paul Child had died, and she was keeping company, as they say, with a gentleman who was a widower. Uh, the, the two couples had been friends, and okay. the man's wife had died, and Joy's husband had died. And I said to her, gee, he must think he's the luckiest man alive. He's ended up with Julia Child. And she said, he really likes very plain food. <laughs> she said, he's really kind of a meat and potatoes man. And then she paused for a moment and she said, but men have other uses, you know. <laughs> oh my God. What a great story. Wow, that's amazing. She was, she was adorable. Yeah, oh. really, really amazing. So, you know, of all of the the kind of stories that you hear all the time. I mean, is there any kind of, I guess I'm trying to like hone in on this again, like any kind of through line that you hear from like the most abstract, like stories from each other, from, you know, that the center point of where these things meet that you can kind of think of the like central theme of it all, like how it all kind of connects for you in terms of the stories you've heard. That's, um, that's a hard one because we're, we are also different and our experiences are also different. But maybe the answer is um, resolution or forgiveness or understanding. I mean, I, it seems to be that we don't hear people being at peace if they're still carrying around this uh, dist disturbance about what happened um, between mother and child. And sometimes we do hear from a mother about her daughter. I'm, both points of view are welcome in Eat Darling Eat. So uh, even though we, I, I'd say the preponderance of our stories are from daughters writing about mothers, we do have the other as well. There's our favorite thing to hear at Eat Darling Eat is when we hear that it's a time thief that people like sat down and thought they'd give it five minutes and an hour later they're reading 30 different stories. But our second favorite thing to hear probably is when we hear that there has been some kind of healing by telling their story. Yes, that's what I was thinking the whole time, that the, the crux of it is the storytelling. It's the telling of the story. That's what helps process things. Storytelling is very powerful. Yes. We've seen that in, in many ways in our culture. Um, we focus on a particular group of people and, um, and the way that they're processing that particular experience. But the storytelling itself is a huge factor in understanding. It's mm -hmm. what I've said before, I'm being repetitive now. As a therapist, it's all about the telling of stories. It's mm -hmm. all about every day I listen to stories, mm -hmm. all kinds of stories, different aspects and angles of stories. 
And um, that's where the healing is. That's, where, how, that's really how the healing takes place. Sometimes we have to retell a story. We realize that we're telling a story in a way, and it needs to be retold in a different way. And that's sometimes where change happens. You know, we're telling the same old story. Right. Relationships that don't heal. And then one day we realize that we want to look at it a different way, and we tell the story differently. What's the Leonard Cohen line? Uh, the cracks is where the sunshine gets in, where the light gets in. Yeah, there's a crack in everything, and that's where the light comes in. Yeah, I have it right on my wall. I yeah. also often think of that Japanese pottery making, um, where if there's a crack in the pottery, they heal it by putting a, a very noticeable and obvious kind of gold along the crack mm. and um i think of mother-daughter relationships that way that um trying to hide what happened but in in the process of healing it you can make it beautiful again mm -hmm. i agree yeah it's and it just takes a willingness to I don't know. There's a vulnerability in that and trying to heal it because it can be like a very difficult process and trying to do that stirs up old emotion. It's pain. It's painful. Every, I personally believe that I think that every mother daughter relationship, even the best ones are painful because there's like the anticipatory grief element of it. It's very hard, you know? And I mean, just to kind of what we were just talking about, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on the show, but, um, there's like a passage in one of the essays in Slouching Towards Bethlehem in, in which Joan Didion kind of talks about why she writes and it's to remember who she is. You know, like she basically is like, I'm a writer because so I can remember who I am. So I have some kind of documentation of like who I was in life. And I think in a way that people are writing these stories about their mothers to really be able to see them for who they were. Because I, I think there's times... And it can seem like romanticizing even a bad situation, but I think it's like, it, it is, it can be an element of that, but also of seeing a whole picture of someone, right? Like you can have a terrible, uh, maybe, I don't want to say terrible, but a very complicated relationship with, the, with your mother and then write a story, start writing a story about what a terrible cook she was or how horrible mealtime could be. But in that, there is a you know, in the remembering of that story, there is love there too. Cause you're, you know what I mean? Like there can be these little nuggets of time when you can it's, through your it's duality. Through, it all exists at the same time. You know, that's the reality. There isn't, it's not all bad. It's not all good. It all exists at the same time. You know, what you said, Zara reminded me of somebody I worked with many, I worked in hospice for many years and I remember working with this woman and she had such, her mom was there. She was seeing her to her dying. Her mom was in her nineties. And she had such a difficult relationship with her. Her mom was so difficult. She never gave an inch. And the woman waited. She was waiting on her hand and foot in her dying, waiting for the final words to hear, I love you. And at one point, I suggested to her to think of her, that she only knew her mother for 40 years. Her mother had lived 50, you know, 40 years before that. And I asked her to try to imagine who her mother was before the time she spent with her. And in some ways, that's where the healing took place. So I think we're all saying the same thing, that in these stories, you recognize the, it's not, your mother isn't just a mother and your daughter isn't just a daughter. We're, we're people, we're human, separate people. And the telling of the stories helps us see this, the, the life of that person. Right. And in some way, your mother is like, uh, I don't know, a, a, a cave draw, an etching of who, you know, of your 
a blueprint of like who you, of the house that you became. You know what exactly. I mean? And that's interesting. Well, to, to share with you my background, my mom was a Holocaust survivor. She grew up in Yugoslavia and um, she grew up in a, in a town called Senta. And for her, she always wanted to leave. And there was a bridge in Senta that went over the river. And she always talked about that bridge, thinking about that bridge. So when I did her 80th birthday party, I made a book for her and I had people write all kinds of things. And I found pictures of her as a child and, and I found a picture of the bridge. And the, the, it was so powerful when I think about that now. That's a part of my mother. I didn't, that wasn't how she related to me, that bridge. But it wasn't until I looked into her history and really studied her background and understood more about her background and the bridge symbolized that that I understood more about her longings and her, her fears and things that she never talked to me about. But, you know, I think her history, her story of her life helped me understand. We often hear from our storytellers whose mothers have passed away, if I had one more day, <laughs> if I could just go back and ask some of those questions um, that I didn't have the opportunity to. Um, we always say that our stories go from sweet to sour. Probably the, <clears throat> the most dramatic story that we had was called A Breakfast of Brown. And the brown was heroin. The mother was an addict who brought <clears throat> heroin on a piece of foil to the breakfast table. Uh, what Nora Ephron always said about writers is that nothing bad ever happens to a writer. It's all material. And what I love that we do at Eat Darlene is that we we turn everybody into a writer, um, and they use their material to process. I keep coming back to your word. I love your word. Um, uh, this, this storytelling is a way to process what has happened, possibly never examined before. Possibly, as you said, Zara, it will feel like opening a vein, um, but a possibly unnecessary odyssey, a necessary path to understanding and resolution. Beautiful. Really wonderful. Amy, as we approach the end of the show, we are going to ask you, as we do with uh, all of our guests, if we we're going to uh, have a dinner party together, because we like to think about being able to, especially in this time where we're all kind of disconnected and we were just talking about before the show, we're now in the time we're able to kind of connect again, but let's have an imaginary dinner that we're going to get to share together. What would, what would we all bring to this dinner? We'd probably have many more stories to tell and, and the foods we bring. Let's see. Huh. Well, I think, you know, I was talking about my mom. I think I'd bring stuffed cabbage. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> I love to make it. You have to, you know, steam the cabbage and take the, the, the hard part off and then make a wonderful filling and stuff it and make a sweet and sour sauce. So yeah. I'd make stuffed cabbage. Yeah. Okay. Well, since I know that there would be a lot of storytelling to do, um, I'm going to bring a pitcher of martinis. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to bring Bruce Springsteen. Ooh. <laughs> I love it. The man or the music or both. <laughs> it, it would be both, of course. Ah, mm. how fabulous. We, we, need, we need some entertainment. Amazing. It's funny. I was actually thinking, I was talking with a friend earlier today about um, the records that changed your life and, you know, the whether they were like your favorite. I mean, typically those are going to also be your favorite, but just the real life changing ones. The moment you heard this and you're like, oh my God, this 
this exists. What else exists? <laughs> and one of those for me was Born to Run. So it's really funny that you mentioned that because it was the okay. first one on my list. Well, Zara, you get to sit next to him at the dinner then. <laughs> That would be amazing. Amy, uh, it was so wonderful to connect with you. And I just really, what you're doing is so important and, you know, amplifying people's voices who have stories that they're willing to be vulnerable enough to share is a big thing because, you know, one thing that I think is so important about storytelling is that we, we all have this story, right? So it's like everyone is equipped with like this arsenal of stories and to be able to share it is brave. And to be able to listen to it and hear it and take it in is very important. Like, you know, I have a friend right now who's going through an incredibly difficult time. Opposite, it's father's son. Like, his father is dying uh, of dementia. And I keep trying to, like, encourage, like, either sharing my own stories or encourage him to, like, read other stories. Because I just think there's something that there's so... we It's so easy to think that this is only happening to us. And that's the worst place to be. You know, I think that's the darkest place Mm -hmm. to be. That's the most kind of emotionally dangerous place to be when it feels like I'm in this box all alone. And not that it ever, you know, heals it to necessarily. It doesn't take away what your own experience is. But to, you know, remember that there's other people out there. And from, you know, this can go from even just like going to a museum or reading really like old stories to know that from thousands of years ago Mm -hmm. until present day, that the the shared human like experience of it all, and so I think what you're doing is really great because it provides people um, a like a life jacket, you know, a, like a rope, a hand when you're kind of sinking to grab you. I think that's the power of storytelling. So, well, we always quote Victor Frankel. He said, "Survival is a community event." I was leaving my building. Uh, recently and bumped into a neighbor I hadn't seen for a while. And she said to me, oh, I love the stories on Eat Darling Eat. And I said, well, when are you going to write your own? And she said, I don't have a story. And she said, my, I, my mother just admitted to me recently that every time she made spaghetti sauce, she used Velveeta cheese. I always <laughs> wondered why it was orange. Oh, I, I love it. I said, that's the lead of your story. Can't you just see that woman with that <laughs> little description? You immediately get a picture of her. So, yes, we do believe every woman has a story and every story is important. So we hope lots of your listeners will go to eatdarlingeat.net and join our community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And is there any any other way that people can follow you? Eatdarlingeat.net to read the blog. And is there, are you on social media? Anything else? That you yes, like? we have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page. Um, and they can always write to us with questions that, email address is info at eatdarlingeat.net. Right. And is that a good way if someone is curious about a submission? Is that the Absolutely. We, we, right. We're here 23-7, basically. We love, <laughs> we love helping to bring these stories to life. Awesome. Well, we are so grateful for you guys doing it. And it's been such a... But this is like many of our episodes, but this is definitely one of them where you could sit and gab all day long. <laughs> we could. Really. It's just you know, your perspective is interesting. You're a wonderful, charming person. And it was just so great to get to spend the afternoon with you. Thank you so much. I'm going to go look up uh, green on greens and make something from it. <laughs> okay. I mean, I just on a side note, green on greens is for anyone who hasn't read it. What a fantastic cookbook. The recipes in are so interesting and they're ageless. I mean, it's not a new book, but they're, they're really ageless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Really fascinating. So much, a lot of shrimp. It's shrimp heavy. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> sometimes, you, sometimes you take out, um, you can sort of, well, you can't really see behind me my, some, oh, yeah. some, some of my, that's just a portion of them. Um, but sometimes you take out an older cookbook and it feels like, ah, did we really eat that way then? That's mm. not true about Green on Greens. It feels very yeah. current. Yeah. It's wonderful. It's yeah. a wonderful, wonderful cookbook. Yeah. Yeah. Amy, thank you so much. Thanks, thank thanks to both of you. I hope we'll meet in person before too long. A hundred percent. Absolutely must. Have Absolutely. A real feast. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Thank thanks. you so thanks, much, Amy. Amy. Have a good one. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Thank you so much for joining us for Processing. We realize that sharing these types of deeply intimate stories on air is a very personal decision. We began this project as a way to connect our listeners through shared experiences and storytelling. We hope that processing can be a platform for sharing, learning, and healing. We appreciate our guests' willingness to be vulnerable and value nothing more than making both our guests' and listeners' experiences with our show positive and progressive. If you're interested in being a guest on the show or writing in a listener letter, please email processing at heritageradionetwork.org. Please follow us at Processing underscore podcast on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click at the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.